Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Ephesians chapter number two this evening. Ephesians chapter number two. I'm going to read uh, several uh, passages or several rather verses, not passages. <laughs> oh, the signs are already warning, aren't they? <clears throat> Ephesians 2, starting with verse number 1, the Bible says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the lust and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might shew the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. My subject for the next few moments is this. You were, but God. You were, but God. Amen. Let's pray today. Lord, we come to you tonight. God, we're asking, Lord, for your blessing and your help. Lord, in the next few moments, Lord, as we look at your scriptures and of your word, I pray, oh, Lord, open our minds of our understanding and cause us, Lord, to understand this word tonight. God, I pray, oh, Lord, help me, God, to, Lord, speak some acceptable words tonight. God, for your people, God, that we can learn by them. God, I pray our lives can mature and grow by them and we'll be thankful and grateful, Lord, for what you do. In the name of Jesus Christ that we pray, amen. You may be seated, amen, this evening. Uh, what Paul is doing here in the second chapter of Ephesians, uh, he's doing what I believe is uh, important and that we all should do from time to time, and that is every once in a while we should periodically cast our eyes over our shoulders and see where we are compared to where we once were at. It's good every once in a while to do that, not for the purpose uh, per se of longing uh, for where we once Uh, we're at but to see if we've made any progress to see if we've went anywhere in a certain amount of time whether it be months or whether it be years and so Paul in uh, second uh, second Ephesians is uh, taking a moment for reflection and in his reflection speaking uh, to the Ephesian church and the church that was established there uh, he said plainly what they uh, once were he said you were dead you were dead of course not in the physical sense but in a spiritual sense you you were dead but considering the here now now you are in Christ he says but then 
you were dead and you were in trespasses and sins. There's something very interesting tonight, at least it was to me, uh, that whenever I looked up the word trespass and I looked at it in the original language, that it came from a root word which literally means just very simply this, it means both a slip and a fall. Trespass means a slip and a fall. And what caught me by this to be so interesting is because a slip and a fall are really vastly two different words. But a trespass is both a slip and a fall. In other words, you, you can slip without falling. But note well, you've never fell without first slipping. You know, there's times you ever been in a, in a scenario, uh, you ever lost your balance and you regained it and you thought, boy, man, that was close. I almost fell. <laughs> I, I, I almost fell right there. An almost fall is a slip. An almost fall is a slip. But a complete fall begins with a slip or a loss of balance. And ends with the fall. Now that loss of balance could, could take longer than others. That slip might slide longer than others. Before the fall happens, sometimes, man, you don't know what can hit you and you just fell. But I guarantee you this, before you fell, you lost balance. Uh-huh. You slipped and you lost balance. And, and the reason why that is so important to me, he says, you were dead in trespasses and in sins. You, you were dead in, in the slips and the falls, so to speak. In other words, as a pastor, as a leader, anybody, I get nervous at the slip level. I get nervous at the lost of balance level because although you may recover from a loss of balance and although you may recover from a slip, both of those are precursors to falling. Amen. And if you do recover, we must remember this as, as Christians and children of God. If we do recover from a loss of balance spiritually, if we do recover from a slip spiritually, we must remember that our risk of falling was always greater in that moment. Amen. Uh, years ago, now it is years ago, my mother and father probably don't even know what I'm about ready to say. Years ago, Jeremy Penrod, him and I were bosom buds. And uh, we were driving. I wish Brad Worth was here. He wasn't with us at that time. But we were driving uh, the back roads from Princeton to Owensville that we commonly did a lot of times. And uh, I, was, I was young, young, young enough to have a driver, or old enough to have a driver's license, but not too old past having a driver's license. And uh, Jeremy, he, he went through uh, all kinds of different vehicles, and, and uh, I got to drive every single one of them uh, whenever I was old enough. But at that time, uh, he had that old white Monte Carlo. Uh, I don't remember the year of it, but he had the big old, uh, it was the big Monte Carlo. And, and uh, we, we were going those back roads from Princeton to Owensville, and I was a young driver, and I was driving the Monte Carlo. 
And those roads switch back and forth between pavement, gravel, gravel, pavement, just constantly back and forth. And uh, you know how it is. You, you get courageous whenever you're young and unlearned and stupid. And you get courageous and you think you're invincible. And you underestimate the power of what you're trying to drive. And we came up on a curve, Brother Mason, in our travel that was on a gravel road. And I was going faster probably than what I should have been going on a gravel road that had a curve in it. And whenever I tried to do the, the, the curve, we started going in 360 circles. We did make more than one of those, 360 circles on that road. And we came to a stop right before hitting a four-foot or six-foot bobbed wire fence that led into a pasture. And that put the fear of God inside of me. As a matter of fact, after that, Jeremy looked over at me and says, do you want me to drive? And I don't think it was really a question. I think it was a statement. But it put the fear of God in me because we nearly had a wreck. And you say, well, Brother McGee, and I asked myself, did, did I ever do anything stupid again? Yes. Listen now, but only when I grew comfortable with the idea that our slipping and our spinning did not result in a wreck. Put the fear of God in me at the moment to consider my slip and my out of balance. I, I could have had an accident, but I didn't. And whenever that wore to a place that I didn't have it, and, and it removed my mind centering around the risk factor, I did something stupid again. Mm -hmm. Whenever I got comfortable with the idea, I did it, but it didn't happen. I presume sometimes, even in our Christian walk, that if we can get by with something, that we can grow comfortable to a place, although the risk is high whenever we endeavor to do that, we'll do it again. Because somehow we think we got some type of ticket that says it don't apply to you. I, I, want, I believe Paul was trying to admonish even the Ephesians. And I want to admonish because a lot of Ephesians is about the church. I want to admonish us tonight that beating the odds isn't always a point of celebration. Especially if you're going to purposefully engage in those types of odds again because none of us are invincible. None of us doesn't matter who we are. So to transgress then is the slip and the fall. And the slip will always precurse the fall. You may recover from the slip and never fall. But if you fall, you will have slipped first. You will have lost balance first. In the English, transgress means to go beyond. Just the English meaning means to go beyond or overstep a limit or a boundary. It's from a Latin, two Latin words. One uh, trans, which means across. Another great eye, which means to step. In other words, it is a step across or in the wrong direction or on the wrong path. Amen. And whenever you step across or in the wrong direction or just a step, mind you, I'm not talking about several miles or several feet. I'm just talking about a step across. Amen. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not talking about going 10 feet across. I'm just talking about a step, a single solitary step across that boundary line is betraying the limit and that's dangerous ground just to even get a step 
a cross. It's denoted as transgression. A few scriptures in Proverbs illustrates the significance, if you will, of a foot or simply a step across. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 1.15, some of these you will not have, brother, because they're just bullet points, all right? Proverbs 1.15, he says, refrain thy foot from their path. He's speaking of wicked and pernicious people. He said, refrain your foot. Didn't say feet. He just said even your foot, if your foot is there, refrain your foot from their path. Proverbs 3.26 says, keep thy foot from being taken. Not, not your whole self, just your foot, just a step. Refrain it from being taken. Proverbs 4.27, remove thy foot from evil. Just your foot. I mean, what, what, what's the big deal? Because I'll tell you what, I've slipped sometimes on one foot that created a major fall. Amen. I, people, people's broken hips that laid them up in the hospital for days because they slipped and just took a step and failed. Amen. David even understood it when he told us of a couple instances where his foot, not feet, mind you, again, his foot slipped. Amen. He was betrayed just by a solitary step. He said in Psalms 38, 16, he said, when my foot slippeth, just my foot. He said, or when another place in Psalms 94, 18, he said, my foot slippeth. Again, he's just talking about one foot that is being slipped away. But He's saying this, he's talking about the road life. He said, you were in transgressions and you were in sins. The word sin, we've looked at this at different times throughout the history of the church, but in its original meaning, it, it comes from a term that it was used in archery and it literally means a miss. And so much that a man who was uh, shooting a bow and an arrow at a target would miss. That would be interpreted as it is in scripture, a sin. It's a failure to hit the prescribed target. It is, if you will, the failure to be what you ought to be or what you could be. One old preacher said it like this me years ago, and it escaped me exactly who it was who said it. But he said it would be horrible. He said it would be horrible if at the judgment seat of Christ, if he examined us by standing before us, the person we could have been. Amen. William Barclay, in speaking about this idea or this concept of sin, he stated this very important, I think very valid point. He said, once a thing becomes a habit, he said, it is not far from being a necessity. That we'll, we'll delve into some things that may be considered sins and whenever we become habitual about them, and the scare again is worn away and that doesn't affect our minds or our actions anymore and we continue in those and they become a habit it might have started out as a want might have started out as a desire but whenever it becomes a habit it metamorphoses into now not just something you want but it, it you have a need for that thing so sin can first enter as a desire, but whenever it's continued, it begins to get a little skewed. What was now just was, the one is now a need. And it's at that point in the process of sin that it's very, very difficult because the human will hardly has any power within itself to refuse because what was a want is now a need. 
And our human will has a hard time uh, keeping ourselves from things that we perceive that we need. We can cast off and maybe have some restraint concerning wants and desires. But whenever that changes, and it, it doesn't matter that it might still just be something frivolous. If it changes in your mind from a want to a need, your human will, yourself, are going to have a hard time abandoning that because you're going to see it as vital to your life. I can't live without it. I can't do without it. Amen. He says, the Ephesians, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And this whole idea of being dead in trespasses and sins goes all the way back uh, to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve uh, uh, disobeyed the Lord. According to the scriptures in Ephesians, there were about three, three forces, amen, that helped encourage uh, the church, nowadays church, uh, to disobedience. You can read of them uh, looking at verse number two, and verse number three, they are listed there for us. Some of the forces that help encourage us in a line of disobedience are these. The world, the world is a force that we, we reckon with. Number two, it is the prince of the power of the air. The devil, Satan. Number three is the flesh. It's lust, it's desires. So in this life, Whomever you may be, you deal with these forces of the world, the enemy, and the flesh. Amen. And the world, the world is more than just dirt and trees and water. Whenever it's speaking of the world, I'm talking about there is a spirit of this world. The Bible proclaims in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So plainly in Scripture, there is a spirit of the world. And that spirit you must combat in your everyday lives. Amen. The, the world is not an innocent player in the life even of church people. This, yeah, the spirit of the world is not an innocent player in the life of church people. The world, notice, he says, you'll follow the course of the world. The world has a course. I guarantee you it does not harmonize with the path that God has for you. So we got to be on guard. Listen, we got to be on guard so that we don't receive the spirit of the world. Because just as well as you can receive the spirit of God, you can receive the spirit of the world. Worldliness is a spirit. Amen. Worldliness is a spirit. And then secondly, we're combating against the prince of the power of the air. The devil. The prince of the power of the air. Now, you know that's the devil. Well, I, I kind of just let Scripture harmonize with Scripture. Jesus told his disciples that he beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven in Luke 10, 18. Amen. And so we understand uh, that he's a prince of the power of the air a prince so he's a high ranking force amen and the power of the air to be dealt with but something that does my heart well although we contend with him on an everyday basis and the Ephesian church did as well whenever Christ comes to call us home to rapture us home someday our meeting place with the Lord is where that's what he said 
The dead in Christ shall rise first, and ye which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the air. So where the enemy's domain is present in this right now world where he is a prince, a high-ranking official, when Jesus comes back for his church, he's not coming all the way back to the earth. He says, I'm stopping right here in his domain, and I'm calling my children... My son to my daughters, and let's and there's nothing that the enemy can do about that. Hallelujah. Amen. First Thessalonians, just to give you the scripture, first Thessalonians 4:16. Here it is. I basically already quoted that. Amen. Verses 16 and 4, 16 and 17 is where that's found. So so the devil is that spirit. The scripture even says here in Ephesians, he is that spirit. It claims it is him. He is that spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying every individual that disobeys is possessed of a devil. All right? However, I am saying that any person that is working in the mode of disobedience is being influenced by devilish tactics. The methods of the enemies not changed really over years. Adam and Eve disobeyed the command of God based upon what? Based upon the first lie that's told. Being, you shall not, you shall not surely die. That was the lie. They disobeyed as a result of accepting his lie as truth. And today, the devil still lies to us. We believe it and disobey known commands. Steadfast, sure commands by believing the lie that he is feeding us. I can tell you, and I know whenever you're in the vice of that scenario, it's hard maybe sometimes to distinguish, but as an outsider looking in, I know sometimes, having been in that place, that everybody's saying, what in the world is going on? You know? It's like, they're lying straight through their teeth, you know? Can't they see this? But whenever you're in that mode, sometimes it's hard to dif differentiate what is going on. And the third thing that we succumb to, and we're not past this. None of these things are we past. We're not past the influence of the world. I think it's another thing Paul was saying. You dealt with that, but you're going to deal with that. It's part of your past, but it's part of your future. And you're going to have to know how to handle some things that he's going to tell us about later in the book of Ephesians. you still got to deal with the spirit of the world and, and the devil, but you also have to deal with the works of the flesh. These are some of the most conniving things ever are the works of the flesh. Uh-huh. Because they seem to be, to a certain degree, just a part of you. And the works of the flesh, we sometimes we talk about all oh, the works of the flesh. Bless God, I don't succumb to any of that because we automatically equate the works of the flesh with any type of sexual impurity. But that ain't so. Works of the flesh just isn't talking about sexual impurity. The Bible states what the works of the flesh are in Galatians 5 and verse number 19 starting. The Bible says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, does anybody know what lasciviousness is? Nobody? Brother Mason? Shoot it at us. The wanton desire to be lusted after. 
You're vying for the attention for someone to lust after you. That could could come through a a myriad of ways. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, which is basically contention, emulations, which basically boils down to jealousy, wrath, strife, seditions, which basically boils down to divisions. Here it says, envians, murders, drunkenness, revelings. I, I, I did a little bit further in depth concerning revelings. I've heard it talked about and things before, but I wanted to look at it a little bit more. Revelings was this. Revelings was a wild party. Listen. Involving music, drinking, singing, and parading late at night, honoring the God of the grape harvest. His name was Bacchus. And listen to me well. In the second century, this God was depicted as a beardless, sensuous, naked or half-naked, genderless youth. And literature described him as womanly or man-womish. Hmm. Has there ever been any parades in certain cities and towns, even in Washington, where late in the night there's been singing and dancing and parading and music, and seemingly they were worshiping a genderless God? Mm-hmm. And he said, and such like of which I tell you before, I have also told you in times past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Folks, this works of flesh, not just considering adultery, we're looking at strife. We're not just considering witchcraft, we're looking at envy. Yeah. Here it is. This is where this is where sin is put on the same shelf. Because the adulterer will be kept and not inherit the kingdom of God just as much as the one that causes strife. Amen. Years ago, <clears throat> there was an open air preacher. He was telling telling an old old story. A thoughtless youth said out loud, he said, you just tell us about the burden of sin. He says, I feel none. Then he flippantly added, how much does sin weigh? Eight pounds? Ten pounds? The preacher answered, tell me, son, if I put a 400-pound weight on the chest of a dead man, would he feel it? No, because he's dead, answered the youth. Preacher responded, and the man who feels no load of sin is dead spiritually. The scripture calls it dead in trespasses and sins. I ask you tonight, do you feel the burden of when you have sinned? Because if you don't, you may well feel alarmed because you may be dead spiritually. The dead have no feeling. The dead have no life. The dead have no power. Talk until you're blue in the face to a dead person. You'll become frustrated because you will not get a response. 
but everyone that was dead in trespasses and sins that could not respond, that did not have the life to respond, that could not feel the, 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 the anxiety of where they were in their placement of life, must all have what the scripture says in verse number four. They need a but God moment in their life. Hallelujah. The apostle was saying, hey, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. You couldn't help yourself. You didn't have the power to help yourself. It didn't matter what anybody said to you, but God, but God. I'm here to tell you we need a shaking in our bosom every once in a while whenever we become indifferent and closed out to what God says, what his word says. We need a but God moment in our life. Amen. Because when they have that but God moment, that changes the condition. Whenever but God happens, there's a quickening now back to life. They can hear. They can respond. They can change. But God changes a lot of things. Every bit of humanity needs a moment like that in our life. Amen. Just look, look at the difference. And I just got a few scripture references here. Look at the difference that just that two-word phrase changed and altered some things. Genesis 48 and verse 21, the Bible says, And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. Genesis 50 and verse 20, Joseph is speaking, and he says, As for you, ye thought evil against me, speaking to his brothers, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. David in Psalm 73 and verse 26, he's crying out to God. He says, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and the portion forever. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, here's a verse that many of us know. He says, there had no temptation taken you, but such is common to man, but God is faithful hallelujah who will not suffer you to be tempted but that ye are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it Philippians 2 27 for indeed look at this uh, just this moment of, of what can change for indeed he was sick nigh unto death but God had mercy on him not only to him but on me also lest I should have sorrow up on sorrow just a moment where everything, you're dead, you can't respond, you can't react, you're in a dismal, gloomy picture, but God. And that changes the landscape of your life. It changes the destiny of your life, those moments. And so scripture says, but God who is rich in mercy, in verse four, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Now let's read that slow. But God who is rich in mercy for, his great love wherewith he loved us. It is for his great love wherewith he loved us. That is encompassing, amen, the church. That is encompassing the Jew and the Gentile. I like what uh, Brian Kinsey, an apostolic minister uh, from Florida, said one time. He said, God's love determines the riches of his mercy. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. God's love determines the riches of his mercy. And let me tell you, he is love. He exudes love. 
And as a result of that, you better know that his riches concerning mercy are very deep. God loved us, and just in the single act that took place on Calvary's hill, there was something displayed. God showed us to the extent that he hated sin, and he showed us the abundance in which he loved the sinner in the same cross. You know, a common feeling, I got a string hanging here, but the common feeling when someone comes to terms with sin, that they've transgressed, that they have sinned, common feeling sometimes that they have is, is some estrangement with God. A lot of times this happens just even on a human level whenever there are differences between people or there's been a wrong done between people, you feel estranged from them. You feel like you can't approach them. A lot of times that's because what you're feeling on your side of the fence, if you've been the transgressor, if you've been the one in the wrong, you have guilt. You have shame. And the guilt and the shame is a wedge then that comes between you and your God. Biblically speaking of Luke 5 and 8, the Bible tells the story of Peter and they went on the water and he let down the net as the Lord said and they brought in a, a drought of fishes and when Simon Peter saw that he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, what did he say? He didn't say, come close to me and let's have lunch. No, he said, depart from me. Why? For I am a sinful man. Because of the realization of positionally where he seen he was, it didn't make him want to get close to God. It made him want to stay at distance. Why did he, why, why would you want that? He's the only one that can cure a problem because you're dealing with guilt and shame. You're dealing with guilt and shame. It's a, you know, it's, as a young kid, sometimes it's hard for them to look you in the eye whenever they've done something wrong. It's hard to face whoever it was that you wronged. But God's heart and his desire is to help sinful man. Amen. Whenever he realizes, amen, that he's in that state, he doesn't want them to push away. He wants to take them in close. He wants to take care of that shame, take care of that guilt. I think what God would tell us that whenever we do make our wrongs and mistakes, I think what Paul was trying to reassure uh, the Ephesian church, knowing that they would still have some mistakes and they would still have some failures in their life, although they were born again now of the water and the Spirit, I think he was trying to convey to them that God will love you through that. God will love you through that. And here is, here is a moment, a pivotal moment, a a moment on the hinge when we, listen, God's going to love us through it, all right? He will. I mean, man, he's, he's got a lot of long suffering and forbearance and all these things. And he'll love us through it. But whenever we come to the place we recognize that and we're ready to turn this thing around and we begin to reciprocate that love back toward God, when we start to do that, when we start to reciprocate that love back toward God, you know what happens? We love less than the things that we esteemed above God. Uh-huh. Because the thing that you love the most will be the thing you'll sacrifice other things for, even if it's other things you love. Amen. So, God's done this great deed for us, this great love. And verse 5 says that when we were dead in sins, that was our condition, God hath quickened us together with Christ. He quickened us. He took a dead man and made him alive. 
took a man that was dead, spiritually dead, and made him alive. He brought a resurrection upon a man. In the Gospels, there are about three resurrections, three resurrections in the Gospels uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was involved with, one being the widow's son that was resurrected and brought back to life, another one being Jairus' daughter that's resurrected and be brought back to life, another was, uh, excuse me, Lazarus when he went to the tomb of Lazarus. I guess I pulled that string and just lost my button altogether. Don't pull loose strings unless you know what they're connecting to you. (laughs) Write that down for me, though. So we we have these resurrections in the Scripture. But notice, in these scenarios, Jesus would speak a word. He'd speak a word. This is the format. He'd speak a word. And then life entered the body. The, 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 the widow's son there at Nain, he spoke a word. Life entered the body. He had his hand on the, 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 the coffin or the bier, as they called it in Scripture, and he spoke a word. At Jairus' daughter, he spoke a word. Life entered the body. At Lazarus' tomb, he spoke some words. Life entered the body. This evening in our personal resurrections, personal spiritual resurrections, God does not work independent of his word. He does not work independent of his word. He works in harmony with his word. He uses his word as a tool to bring his people who may be dead spiritually back to life. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12 that people have learned his memory verses growing up. For the word of God is quick, which in the original meaning basically means this, alive. The word of God is alive. And powerful, which basically means active in the original language. The word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God will not work independent of his word because his word's alive and his word's active. So he uses that alive, active word as a tool to resurrect spiritual deadness. Amen. But I like this. Being resurrected... Amen. Being resurrected, being raised from the dead by Christ is not the end of the journey. Resurrection is not the end of the journey. It's the beginning of the journey. Because if we utilize, per se, the story of Lazarus and the example that's given there, here Jesus speaks those words, Lazarus come forth. That dead man who's been dead four days gets up, walks out of the tomb. But there were some other commands. He spoke to those that were around him. He said, loose him and let him go. Why? Because there were still some items that were associated with his dead man's state that were still tethered to him. He had grave clothes on, amen, that were limiting, even encumbering him, that still needed to be taken off him. So being out of a dead state's one thing. But you need to continue on your journey because there's still some things attached to you and tethered to you from that dead man state that needs to be taken off, gotten rid of, abolished. Amen. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 and verse 22, it says, and I love this, he says, that ye, everybody say, put off. That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. 
which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 24, that ye, everybody say, put on. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You got to put off so you can put on. The tragedy today is people's leaving on and putting on. You ever put on more layers? Put another layer on top of that. The tragedy is this. The moment you take that layer off, the layer that was there to begin with is there. You don't even have to go through the effort of putting it back on. You got to put off so that you can put back on. You can put on something. I love the Bible because he was telling the Ephesians, basically this is the nutshell of what he was conveying to them. He was telling them, hey, you were dead in sin. Now you can be dead to sin. You were dead in sin, but now you can be dead to sin. And when sin beckons, it's going to be like talking to a dead man. You're dead in a new way now. You died so you could live. It's not you that live, but it's Christ that lives through you and in you. So you can be dead to sin. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. These are some verses of Scripture that I hope that we wear out. He says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm going to be a little repetitious here. You've heard probably me say some of the things I'm about ready to say. But we've looked at these scriptures at various times in various modes throughout the history of the church. But write it in the book of memorial and rehearse it in the ears of the people. Here it goes. Because a lot of people will like to take these two little verses and just interpret to mean, and this is fine, to mean that you cannot be saved by works, but by faith alone. All right? And so, you know, in reality, we cannot be saved by works alone, but by faith. And back in our series on James that lasted a while, we understood that faith never comes alone. Faith doesn't abide by itself. Faith works. Faith works. We have looked over in the past how you can have works without faith, but you cannot have faith without works because faith without works is a dead faith it's a non-existent faith but whenever you have faith in its true sense a living faith that works that becomes a saving faith uh-huh and whenever this happens the bible says i'm saved by grace through faith because that faith is a living faith and it's never alone. It's accompanied by works. A long time ago on a Sunday morning, I was doing some teaching and I brought up this concept and I had an illustration in order to seal it. So with that being said, there's probably some that was in classes that wasn't here, but here it is again, just for whomever it may apply or just reignite. Saved by faith, saved by grace through faith. I am a person. You ready for this? Are you ready? Are you ready for this? I am a person. It's floundering out here in the ocean. I am drowning. I am drowning. I need some help. Someone sees me and they throw out a life preserver toward me. When they threw that life preserver, they were demonstrating grace. 
I see the life preserver, Brother Mason, that grace that has been extended to me. I reach out and I grab a hold of it. And I put it down over top of my head and down underneath my arms. I'm thinking, whoo, I just got saved. I'm an idiot if I don't grab the preserver. If I say it like this, I'm an idiot if I don't grab the preserver because I believe that would be saved by works. Because I reached out and grabbed a hold of it. But works alone will not save you. What I demonstrated there was faith. That works. Because whenever that preserver was thrown out, that was grace. Grace is not salvation. Grace is a vehicle for salvation. When that preserver was thrown out to me, I had faith that this could do something for me. And as a result of my faith, my action then was to grab a hold of that and put it on me. And so they brought me in because of me being saved by grace, the vehicle, through my faith in belief that it could actually work, me grasping a hold of it and pulling in close and bringing me in. It's not of yourselves, the Bible says. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Grace and faith is the gift of God. Grace and faith is the gift of God. If grace was never extended to you, you would have no means or vehicle for salvation. Grace provides that opportunity for you to be saved. And at the same token, though, he's given everybody a measure of faith. So grace and faith, grace and faith are the gift of God. And the Bible says we are saved for this purpose. We are saved unto good works. And those works are good because they're influenced by God. Amen. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, good old scriptures here today. These are good ones just to commit to heart. All scripture, everybody say all. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If I break it down like this and just, just, just kind of push aside some of the middle right now, all scripture is given that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The word of God bears such an important spot and aspect in our lives because it furnishes us unto all good works. That is a big necessity then for your word of God in your life because without it, you're not fully furnished. You're not fully furnished for the good works. Without it, you're not perfect and perfect in the mean of being complete and whole. You're not complete or whole without this being a part of your life. And so if we would disciple uh, new converts and new people in the church, our admonition would be this. Spend time in God's word every day. Because you'll never become whole. You'll never become complete. You'll never be fully furnished without it. That's the reason why we can have 25-year-old Christians that are still handicapped. 
because they failed to incorporate God's word in their life on a daily basis and they'll never reach wholeness and never reach completion until it's a part of their life. Fully furnish us. Then there are those who still fit this description of Titus 1.16. They profess, I wouldn't say profess or say that they know God but in works, they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient. And to every good work, reprobator. In other words, not approved. And every good work, not, not approved. They know God, but in works, they deny him. In other words, their works betray this per se knowledge of God. Titus 3 and 8. Titus is a good book too. They're all good. I think I like Genesis maybe somewhere around to Revelation. Titus 3 and verse number 8, the Bible says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm. In other words, I want you to confirm something for me constantly, he says. That they which have believed, you have believed, you have faith in God, might be careful. In other words, you're going to exercise some thought. You're going to ponder to maintain what? Good works. These things are good and profitable unto men Paul says you were but God now you are here's the amazing thing all times the pattern that's set in scripture and I want everybody to listen to me oftentimes the pattern that is set in scripture is this God oftentimes works in you before he works through you Moses spent 40 years on the backside of a desert where God was working in him. Only for the next 40 years of his life, God would be working through him. Joseph suffered for about 13 years. Amen. While God worked in him through the pit and the prison until he finally made it to the palace. And when he reached the palace of Pharaoh, God was working through him. David was anointed, but was not worked through until God worked in him during those years of an exile and being a vagabond and just running for his life seemingly, but God was working in him so he could work through him. Even the Apostle Paul, New Testament Scripture, the Bible tells us after his conversion that he spent about three years in Arabia. I mean, it was kind of secluded. We don't even hear much of what goes on in that time. But in those three years, you know what God's doing after his conversion? God's working in him. Because whenever he brings him out of that place of seclusion, God's going to start working through him. So what we got to note well, man, when we look back, on the backside of the desert and what took place there and consider Joseph in the 13 years of the prison and the pit. Man, these ain't necessarily the, the high glim and glitter times, folks. But it's God working in. And what you got to keep focused on in those moments is what he's doing right now is preparing to work later through me. I was talking 
You can't always, can always gauge stuff like that and take a ruler out and measure it on the surface. I was talking to uh, some of the people that did our landscape, and I was asking them about some particular things today, and he was kind of closing up the conversation. He says, he says, Pastor McGee, he says, I know a lot of things out there look dead, and he said, through winter, it's not going to look like anything's going on. He says, but you would be surprised the root system that those plants are making right now during the winter. He says, nothing's showing on the surface. He says, but there's a lot of things taking place underground. And I thought, God, how many people in my church, man, I, there's just, even your life, you say, man, there's nothing happening on the surface. It's winter right now. It's cold. It's dirt. There's no moisture. But the roots, he said, are becoming unbounded and they're getting deep and they're getting saturated in the soil so that when springtime comes, they're going to blossom. So you got you to endure God working in you so that later he can work through you. I'll close with this scripture if you'll stand with me. Titus 2.14. There's your indication. <laughs> I'm listening for people who don't have Bibles that zip anymore. Just looking for the glow off their face to go off from their phone or from whatever else. <laughs> who, and it's speaking of Jesus Christ, gave himself for us that he might redeem us he did by his blood remember weeks ago from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people look zealous zealous of good works he redeemed his people from all iniquity so he'd have a pure people a peculiar people but he didn't want them to stop there he wanted them to have some zeal to want to do something he wouldn't be excited about just getting in and doing the work of God so in closing tonight, if you'll look at the very last verse, and you don't have your Bibles open, but he said, we, for we are his workmanship. You were, here is the message to the Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, and so now you are his workmanship, which basically in the Greek it was this, you are his work of art. You were a dead man, <laughs> But now you're a work of art. And that's all because of but God. But God. Hallelujah. Let's pray here tonight. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.